Hi, I'm Laura Schultz. Welcome to the second season of Starting to Feel Better, a podcast about mental health journeys, trauma, and creativity. I'm so excited for this season to have conversations with writers and musicians and painters and therapists, with folks who use creativity in the work that they do. I'm really excited to share my conversations with them, with you. Welcome to season two of Starting to Feel Better. Hello, my name is Brianna Williamson. Today in this space, I'm an author um, and a mother. I'm a wife. Um, when I say those roles, I think you need, I'm an educator, I'm a homeschooler. Uniquely, I would say thinking of, even domestically thinking pre-COVID-19, I remember dropping my child off at daycare and someone was with her for the majority of the day, right? There was a good chunk where daycare, you are, um, you're at work and you're kind of doing your own thing. And um, kind of when COVID started, we, we would do these things and I would ring the alarm and say, mom needs a me moment, right? Like I need to step outside of that role and reconnect with, you know, what makes my heart sing and, and do something. And so in, in, within your, your question, there's so many layers, you know, and I think about the wife, the wife, mom, the wife, mommy and me kind of, you know, um, aspect of who am I in all of those different aspects? Who am I in all of those different layers? And I think it's so ever evolving and ever changing right now that I couldn't just pick one um, in a single day. I literally am homeschooling, right? And so I'm a teacher and then I may have to take a pause to take a call or I may have to take a pause to do a training or a workshop. And so um, the, the I'm wearing very, very much so many, many different hats that even a question like that, it's really hard to pick just one. Right. Yeah. And I love this idea too of like you're saying in this space right now, here's what I am. Here's what I'm bringing to this space. Here are the identities that are important to this audience right now based on the conversation that we're going to be having. I I love it when this happens, when I'm on a call with somebody and I have like, oh my gosh, that I have 16 more questions based on that. And then I also have this other list of questions that I created ahead of time. But one of them that came up for me as you were speaking is as a creative person with so many projects and so much excellence surrounding those projects and that work, I wonder how do you choose to prioritize those from day to day, from moment to moment? Um, I remember turning 30 and feeling like I was hitting this midlife crisis. So I had to figure it out. I was like, that can't be it. But it led me to do a life audit and to just simply look for um, ways to, to plainly state it. Um, stop checking that box, right? It was about the moments in life, no longer the milestones. And so it took me, um, it took critical thinking. It took a deep dive and it took time with yourself, with myself to say, what are the things that I need to put in my basement? Those are things that I've been trying to get better at, um, but they're not a strength of mine. They're not my gifts. And what are my gifts? What are the things that I do with the least amount of effort, right? And how can I spend more time um, giving those gifts away 
in a way that helps me find my purpose. And so in a very finite way, I've had to make two lists every day, my to-do list and my not-to-do list. It's the things that, um, for lack of a better term, where I just can't, I can't deal. I don't want to adult today, if you will, right? And so in having that um, skill, I think about how many people have gone to school or they've taken a class for many things, but time management was not one of them. And so uh, way back in teaching first year experience, I would teach a method that I learned from a professional named Liz Mead, and it was called the 1440 principle. And it's this premise that you have 1,440 minutes in every day. And um, when I when I went on my journey of figuring out the me moments, like when do I need those? What am I trying to find? What am I really reaching for? Mm -hmm. I remember, um, as I did with first year students, say, what is, if I had to do my day, where am I spending my time, right? And so out of 1,440 minutes, I was in the negative. And that's what I was feeling. I was staying up longer while I was running out of time, right? And I was spending time in places where I didn't have to spend it that day. And so it took time for me to step back. It took a time for me to kind of pump the brakes and pause and say, mm -hmm. here are the things that um, and I remember it's kind of one of those things like you can do some things great or you can do some things mm -hmm. really well, you know, or just good. Mm -hmm. And so it was looking at what are the things that I've done and what are the things that I haven't done, but mm -hmm. I really want to do. And how can I put more of that into my life intentionally in the now, but with an aspect of it's not about a check that box. It's about the moments. And so I write books with my toddler and my husband, and we just look at what's going on with her. What are we teaching? And even allowing that into my life, allowing that creativity to kind of explode. I can just look back over the last year and say, um, where was all that creativity just sitting, right? Where yeah. was it bottled up? Where was it displaced? And um, I would say thinking back to, it's called the Lee method. And you make a list of six things and only six things to do each day. Mm -hmm. And for me, I quickly found that um, everybody has their their to-do list or whatever works for them. But if every day I was flipping the page on my to-do list, I was mm -hmm. giving myself way too much to do. It was way, too, the pressure was on. And mm -hmm. so I was like, let me define what's doable for me and let me define what success feels like on a daily so that I can celebrate those small wins and so that I can get excited about what's to come and the opportunities, but also not be burnt out by them. Right. And just when you say like celebrating those moments, I think that's very rare. I think it's very rare that we give ourselves the opportunity, the grace, the recognition, because there's this kind of like, you know, just work hard, keep working hard, keep at it. And there's no room, there's no space in that right. for self-recognition. And I think you're totally right. It leads to burnout then. It does. Yeah. Well, because you're waiting on someone else to celebrate you. Mm. And so... Um, I quickly learned that if I don't, I'm great at celebrating others and that's my gift, but I'm someone who loves to nail a gift, right? Like the person who wants to know what's that one thing that's going to make your heart sing. And that's how I plan gifts. And I learned that others, that may not be their love language. That may not be their strength. And so I had to critically identify what are some ways for me to um, celebrate myself, but to celebrate um, even very small things, you know, like I love the work, even with my daughter, when I say celebrate, it's something that COVID has taught us is we used to do these extravagant 
things. Oh, we need a big birthday party. We need this. Well, now, no, we need to, we bake cakes this year. And all of those little things have just been a breath of fresh air of saying, wow, there's so many different, you know, things that you can do when you just appreciate the moment and don't let life get in the way because you're worried about the photo. And so I say when it comes to the photo op, it's about taking a picture of something that you've planned or executed, but not planning the photo, right? Like, oh, we need to take a picture of X. No, we need to capture the moment. And that's what the photo um, needs to reflect. So it really, I would say, if I had to theme it, was about um, learning to strive for progress and not perfection and saying mm-hmm. and really define like what does what does um, what is good enough look like for me? What does I've spent enough time look like for me? And then really um, there were a couple of different things that I put into my life as just core practice. And one was no as a complete sentence. Right. No, it's a complete sentence. It is a complete answer. I can say no. And I can mean that like very plainly and and learning the power behind, you know, the execution of the word no and saying like, no, no, I don't have time for that. No, I'm not able to do that, you know, and and really having that ownership. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was really one one that really I would say stood out. And then it was really just deciding that if it cost you your piece, it was too expensive. Mm -hmm. And so looking at what are the ways whether I'm spending my time that are simply costing me sleep. Right. They're costing me um, physically where physiologically I feel like my heart doesn't feel at peace or at rest. Right. My brain. And how can I strategically reposition or eliminate those things? And I think that taking that time with myself to find that clarity, taking that time to say, and maybe that's the answer to the question about roles. It's, um, hi, I'm my, hello, my name is Brianna Williamson and I am me, right? Like, and so um, there's a book by Lonnie Love that says, she says, I changed so you didn't have to. And I remember that and I thought, oh, I didn't change. Um, so you wouldn't have to, right? And say, no, I've consistently been Brie, whoever that is. And so when you ask that question mm-hmm. and I default to roles, I'm distracted because I'm like, I'm very unique. I know what I don't like, you know, in this life. I'm learning who I am, but not in one that says I'm setting my ways. It should just say I know them and I'm willing to own them and to mm-hmm. say that they're a work in progress and they may always be. Mm-hmm. And so kind of getting to that point of saying, um, how can you be at peace and what are the things that are costing you your peace and what are some ways that you can eliminate and to take back and to tangibly um, regrip? Mm-hmm. I always said sometimes in life, it feels like you're rock climbing in high heels. And if you get to that moment, how can you pump the brakes and be like, this is not how I want to move. Right. I'm forgetting things. Yeah. So, this is yeah. terrifically uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. That's it. So, I'm wondering about this journey that you're on, that you continue on in relationship to where you are today. So whether that's through education or through that moment when you turned 30 and you felt like, I want to take a look again, do a life audit, as you said, Mm -hmm. at where I'm at and what feels good to me, what brings me peace, what I'm best at. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could speak a little bit to how you got to where you're at today in whatever way you interpret that question. 
So um, it's so good. And thinking about, you know, what kind of questions might Laura ask me um, or what might be relevant? Um, how I got where I am today is by always taking the road less traveled. Plainly stated, right? My father, he would always say, um, if there's a plan A and a plan B, I would ask for plan C. Always looking for what was that other option? Like, what's the way sure. to push the fold? What's the way to try something new? And so how I get where I am today is learning that even before I was an, uh, an entrepreneur, right, which I am right now, um, I was an entrepreneur. So I've always had an innovative spirit. And so um, early on, I learned to keep two notebooks, right? What are the things that are really representative of my underlying dreams and goals? This is the stuff that's too hot for TV. This is not something you post on Facebook. This is like a goal, right? And, and some people miss that. They just, they post it. And it's like, what do I really hold dear? I would write research topics. I would write things I was interested in. Um, daily quotes, um, but it really came from this premise of saying, if I'm not doing, I feel like I'm dying, right? And there's some quote where that comes from um, that really talks about how you have to be progressively learning something every day, right? And so I consider teaching as a two-way street, right? So always if I'm teaching, trying to learn something from that experience. Um, but how I arrive at this moment, I would say, is simply knowing my value and knowing my worth at all times. And what that means is knowing uh, what doesn't make me feel good, right, as a person. Um, when people say, you know, I want to know where I am in life or I want to figure out, and I would say, I, I judge my accomplishments not by did I check that box, but by relationships, right, by how I feel by how I make others feel, right? And so um, it became a different lens. I looked at my vision board and I realized that I had done everything on it. And there should come a time when you accomplish everything on your vision board. And I had, and it was like um, things like, you know, Bush Foundation, you know, getting, you know, this year I would have been presenting at BushCon. Um, on a, a, a thing that we do called speed hating, a blind date with bias, right? So like an activity. And so um, I had been admitted to my doctoral program. I had bought that house that ruined my life, right? Because there were so many of those kinks and quirks and, and everything that goes into your first home buyer experience. But when it was done, it took a second to be like, what happens after the vision board, right? Like once the vision board is all done, right? You know, so when you think very plainly um, about life, I decided that everything up to that point, you know, was problematic simply because it was about a milestone. And there comes a time in life when it can't be about, did I do that? Did I check that box? Did I reach that? Did I reach that goal? Did I do that thing? Because you'll always be looking for another thing. So I kind of got to a point where I realized that my um, persistent or consistent doing of all things needed to be doing a couple of things because that was also sometimes distracting from taking that time with yourself of simply figuring out um, how can I be the innovator that I am in life, push that fold, you know, create the tide instead of riding the wave. Like where mm -hmm. do you get that energy and um, I will say that in doing that, that audit process and taking that time and doing so intentionally, we did so, we traveled while we did it. Mm -hmm. um, we saw new views, right, while we did it. And it was something that really um, just allowed me to say, and, and I'll tell you, you know, my, I had an aunt pass and 
um, in her program was the first time that I ever heard this poem about a dash. And the dash was, was representative of the dash in between your sunrise and your sunset when you get here and when you depart. But it only talks about the dash being life is what you make it, right? You only get to control the dash. You don't get to control the sunrise. You don't get to control the sunset. You only get to control the space in between. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's taking the road less traveled or looking for plan C, looking for the third option, being willing to be an innovator and an entrepreneur to push that new idea, I thought in, in many ways, it all circles back to that, right? That same idea of you have to be willing um, to be the first. Right. You have to be willing to be the first to try it. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. You have to be willing to learn um, that it's about, and, I, and if I were to describe it visually, um, when you get to a stop sign and you're learning how to drive, they tell you that it's not a complete stop if you can't see the stop sign and read the stop sign. But there's there should be a physical motion where the trunk of your car rests right before coming back up. And on a daily, I wasn't feeling that resting point. Mm. Right. And so it was feeling like that abrupt stop where you practically run the stop sign where it's like, oh, I just quick did it a yield. almost. Mm-hmm. And so to put it into visual I had to find what makes my heart feel like it gets that rest every single day. What do I need to move around, eliminate, right? And how can I do that strategically in a way that protects my spirit, protects my soul and protects my, my peace. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that, you know, one of the things that you have to have in this world is um, a litmus test, right? Kind of that barometer, your lens in which you process the world, but also where, you filter out those those things that don't feel good, mm-hmm. right? It's like if I'm at work and something's not feeling right or if I'm here and it just doesn't feel right, right? Mm-hmm. And not to say that it's all about this trust your gut, but just saying that there's something about it that makes me still feel like I'm missing, you know, something. What is the next thing to explore? Yeah. And how can I continually do that where I'm not waiting, mm-hmm. you know, in a way where it says yesterday, you said tomorrow, you know, how can I continually be doing that in a way where if you're not doing, you know, what are you doing? Right. And I think about that when you say like, not that it's all about trusting your gut, but it is partially because that's something we're maybe taught not to do. We're taught not to listen to ourselves, taught not to drop in. And so we just talked about this last week that it's like so much of our movement forward is about unlearning. Mm-hmm. It's about unlearning some of that messaging that we've been getting throughout our lives. Yeah, you know, I thought about that today and I came to and and this is me as a parent, right? This is me as someone raising a tiny human um, who will the one one day the world will be in her hands. And so when I thought about um, I'm teaching anti-racist education to adults, but using Ibrahim Kendi's new book, um, Anti-Racist Baby, when I wake up and hear her say anti-racist baby is bred, not born, I sometimes understand that it's not about the now, it's about the next, right? And sometimes we're short-sighted. We will never progress in life if we always think about how the impact will be for us. So if we think about social justice, civil rights, the fight of today is not necessarily something we will see the fruits of that labor. Mm. But we have to think about, you know, um, those who fought in similar fights before us. What Mm. if they had not? Um, We would be 
decades, centuries behind where we are today. And so if you think not so much about the now, but about the next, you feel more, I feel more progressive, right? Because instead of thinking about, shoot, we're always unschooling. Well, we're Mm -hmm. unschooling because we taught the wrong thing to begin with as compared to, and I learned this more, um, I didn't do distance learning. I completely decided that I would have my homeschool accredited. And so I created a curriculum, went through that process. And I decided that I wanted a cultural curriculum. So each book that we use in some way is by a BBI POC author, someone who's black, brown, indigenous, or from a community of color. And so in, in, in looking at all of those things, I, I thought about um, all of the children who were reading at books by Ezra Jack Keats because we think that's all that's out there. Mm-hmm. And so it took, it took a step back to say that part of it is about we have to focus on teaching the next generation the right thing. Mm. Because in that very way of saying anti-racist babies are bred, they're not born. You have to develop that. So inclusion starts, even with Trolls. I've ruined every kid movie that I can for her, right? Like Trolls came out and I said, um, each of those different streams in life might represent a different community, right? A different culture who we see. And as you watch the film Trolls, they talk about colors, they talk about these different things, but they also talk about scrapbooking and scrapbooking a piece of history from over here and a piece of history from over there. And some people will watch that movie and have no clue. Some people will watch Zootopia and not pick up on a single microaggression. And so I've, like I say, I ruined every kid movie, but it's, how can we extract a lesson from even something so basic? And so thinking about, you know, anti-racist education, more importantly, thinking about um, the generation of college students right now, right? This generation of students who there's seemingly a gap, right? A gap in between what inequities really look like, what they are, what uh, the impact they have on society, And when we get to um, seeing it at the post-secondary level and we see how biased incidents and and even hate crimes are taking place, right, how they carry out, the uniqueness of it is it's predictable, right? In in a very, you know, 5G kind of way, it's predictable. And um, I look at some things like, oh, um, you know, our, our... I don't even know what to say, right? So our current administration and their stance on anti-racist education, um, you know, and, and, and thinking about how it seems silly, but you have to go around and help people understand that that document is the floor, not the ceiling, you know, in compliance work, in your work, it's helping people understand uh, that's the floor, not the ceiling, you know, that's giving you the bare minimum of what you could do. Right. But the, the statement that you make by doing that is so much more telling, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it becomes a personal choice to say, we're going to not say we're going to get creative with how we teach mm-hmm. you know, our curriculum. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But to simply say, hey, we don't have to. Uh-huh. And so in life, if you're always looking for um, what you don't have to do mm-hmm. you know, or what you couldn't do, I feel like then we're consistently um, like a hamster in a wheel if you will, about so many things. I think the silliest thing that I've, and, and, I, and I read it and it said, um, temporarily schools were doing away with the ACT. And I couldn't understand why temporarily, right? 
There's been decades of research to say, please do away with the ACT. And then COVID-19 comes and it gives everyone a reason to say, we have to be flexible. We have to be equitable in some ways. But that temporary stamp is almost like, I want to change, kind of. Right. Like I want to be better, kind of. And so um, I would say everything in life has been a daily self-talk almost, if you will, of being like, what's something new? Like, what can I give myself a stretch goal or something to try? Yeah. Be it um, be it personal, be it professional. But but most importantly, and I learned this from um, a, a faculty who used to be in the system. Uh, how can you strive for harmony instead of balance, right? Like, so you always think, oh, there's equal pieces to the pie. I'm 10% over here. I'm 90%. And when you do that, you quickly find like 10% parenting and that doesn't seem about right, right? 10% mm-hmm. of my time. And so when you think more about harmony, you start to look at the qualitative things, you know, in life, the qualities, you know, some of those things that you can't really quantify, for lack of a better term. And so I feel like having that shift and saying that, yes, it's not about balance. Mm-hmm. Balance may be a fallacy in this life, mm-hmm. you know, but um, it can be about harmony, about mm-hmm. feeling like, oh, I do this on Wednesdays and I do that on Fridays and I, I get my chance to do yoga and really just saying like, how in life can you always have that? Which means the glass is half full, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't get everything, but I get something. Yeah. I'm just thinking about harmony as a concept and the way that different voices might be heard by the ear differently. So like a soprano is not going to be singing as loud as a bass, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to be singing at different levels in order for that harmony to really fill out in a way that sounds beautiful. So that connects to what you're saying in that, you know, we might not do all of the things at the same degree, um, Mm -hmm. depending upon where we're at in that moment in our lives. Right. One of the other things that I wanted to talk a little bit more about is this anti-racist education that you have been doing. How long have you been, um, have you been a part of, is it the connected education? Yeah. So um, we founded that this is year four, I would say, what year is it? Year five, year five officially. And it all started with a single dice. And so kind of in that intrapreneur spirit, our very first product was something called Diversity's Dice. And it was like diversity, introspection, something and something, right? Conversation. And so from that, um, I'll say that we created a training that I believe was called I Expect Equity. And fast forward to anti-racist education is a word that we're normalizing, right? Like it's, it's one of those buzzwords. When I think about um, diversity from the inside out, it's the, it's the hot word to use, but there's many different things that make up anti-racist education. So at the core, um, my passions are really microaggressions, um, really understanding the impact of the supposed daily slights. And what that led to was uh, last fall almost launching something called Unraveling Bias. And so, um, and really pre um, pre the training, uh, we launched a book of 15 different progressive case studies on bias. And so from trainings and from scenarios, I found that in a, in a very unique way, I like to track um, bias incidents, right? So really saying like, what happens over here and why? And so in doing that work, I figure um, that a part of living your life, it can never, it can't be, it can't be about 
you being paid for your gifts. And so it was me just deciding that what a joy to annoy those who simply don't want to know this information, right? Like, so what a joy that you don't want to talk to me and that I care nothing about that. I, my, it's almost in a very, um, if I were ringing your doorbell kind of way, like what a joy to know that you were eating dinner right now, but I'm going to ring your doorbell about your senses anyways, right? What a, the, what a, what a joy. And so what it was is that I realized that. And so um, I started to just say, you know, I, a good person we both know says, if you permit it, you promote it. And so mm-hmm. I would just call it out. And so I would call the president who um, was racist over the weekend, or I would, I would start and I would say, let's just have a conversation. Sure. And it was with this understanding that my goal is not to change your intrinsic value. But from that, it led to the creation of Unraveling Bias, which was the first training that um, had a curriculum and therefore uh, pre-COVID, we had done the same training seven different times, like back to back, it was selling out and it really focused on bias incidents, mm-hmm. understanding microaggressions, bias incidents in relation to hate crimes. Mm-hmm. And as you get into that work, sometimes you have to realize you cannot have one conversation without the other. And that's mm-hmm. where anti-racist education comes in, right? This mm-hmm. idea of how do you... And I'll say it was a couple of things. One was I remember being at work and hearing about a thing called a human library, right? And I thought like, what in the world? Mm -hmm. What kind of wayward thing? And then you realize that there were groups who um, were saying, we're going to be a white group for anti-racist education. Mm -hmm. And so, and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be a white group for anti-racist education? I found in speaking with these groups, it was almost when you learned, oh, there were groups, you know, we have a women's center. And so uh, we have a group of men who think we need a men's center. And so I found that we have anti-racist education groups. And so there was there were groups who specifically felt we have to have a safe space for white people to Mm. talk about white privilege. Right. For white people to have a white dialogue about race. And so. Um, really in trying to think about what are some ways that we can shape the dialogue of, um, it's really about creating a space where you're not taking up space, right? Where you are actively a part of the solution in that moment. And mm-hmm. I, I'm a tiny desk girl. And so there's a tiny desk I love. And she always says, in this space, you are, right? And she defines, in this space, you are loved. In this space, you are this. And I think about, um, even saying the need, it's really how can you you almost identify a protocol? And so from identifying that protocol and saying, what are some ways to strategically be a part of the solution? And so one of those ways was to create a course um, that was certified by the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, and it works with law enforcement officers on anti-racist education and a multicultural society, right? Diversity in a multicultural society. And so it was looking at the different layers of where can my skills be used. And so it was that was the law enforcement, the practitioner side, um, looking at what are some ways that we can talk about um in community organizations and really be a part of that solution in community organizations. And so um, that led to the trademark of an equity rubric, which is a diagnostic assessment for um, organizational equity. Really, it produces a a list of findings for if you wanted to on day one, when you got back to your desk, start to work on these things, here's the low hanging fruit, right? Start by going through and looking, identifying gender neutral language in policy and practice. 
all the way to here's the heavy stuff. Here's the heavy lifting. This is the stuff that will take time, right? And and looking at all of those uh, kind of different unique unique ways to teach um, anti-racist education, um, I decided that the tools that we needed to create that we needed to to do that work were not available. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember feeling like I remember a quote that says. If that book hasn't been written, write it. And I feel like that's the story of my life. And so fast forward to today, Connect has over 150 different tools. We have bias bingo. We have um, microaggression matching. And I um, looked for ways to really make learning about diversity fun. We produce dialogue decks, right? Diversity Mm -hmm. decks. They have questions. Um, We have quite a few different products that really focus on the idea that this work is cumulative. So mm-hmm. it's not a one-off. It's not, oh, I did that anti-racist training or I went to that webinar. Mm-hmm. I read that anti-racist book. Mm-hmm. Um, I know about white privilege, right? Mm-hmm. So it's even if those things were to go away, there was a time where they were not here. And it's looking at, at the very basic mm-hmm. in everything I do, be it my new book with for children all the way up, um, we're talking about differences and similarities, right? Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the, the distinct pinning of those differences and not looking at in a in a stronger together way, the curb cut effect, right? That says, if I do it for one, it'll benefit these groups and that group and that group. Mm-hmm. If I do it for um, indigenous persons, and I know that it's a barrier that they face. And so I would say um, unraveling bias in terms of anti-racism education has really led me to um, a platform of striving for universal inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. And and the messaging behind that is, how can we um, look at the most marginalized person in any space and work our way outward? How can we Mm -hmm. say that um, this desk height is too low for someone with a wheelchair Mm -hmm. as compared to, I don't don't have someone in my class right now with a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Well, it does not matter. One day you may. And so how can we create every space in that way, in a universally accessible, in a universally inclusive way. What are some things that I feel that I've been censored before, right? So if I could say whatever I wanted, what would I say? And then I said that. And I didn't, and it was very, in a very unapologetic way. How can I do anti-racist work unapologetically. When we are at a point, right, of actualized anti-racism, and not in a way where it's about guilt or shame, but it's about teaching history so that we don't repeat it, acknowledging what was done so that we don't do it again. It's not about rewriting it and trying to make ourselves feel better about, well, we weren't alive when they did that, but it was done. And this is how we're repairing Mm -hmm. that today. And when you think of everything from a salient identity lens or um, a lens of intersectionality, um, you your your mind is opened to to explore the possibilities of um, what if, right? In general, what if on that day they were X? What mm-hmm. if they're arriving in that space today with this is with a salient identity that's invisible, something that you can't mm-hmm. see? And so I would say. Um, 
you know, I did work where we did Office of Civil Rights Reviews, and I learned that they were only mandatory to be conducted at two-year Perkins-funded institutions. Okay. And the uniqueness is that process is the only one that requires you to look through a website and say, how many clicks does it take for a student to learn how to report a sexual assault? How is the language skewed at some institutions where students are discouraged from filing a formal complaint and they're rerouted through processes where uh, they're much more informal, where it's like, I took their mm-hmm. feedback, but it didn't rise to the level of a complaint because right. of how they submitted. And you look at criteria, you look at things in the parking lot, um, all the way down to um, how the distance in between the stripes. And you think about what if on day one, we started with this universal idea of saying, even in anti-racist education, How can we um, proactively, rather than reactively, address um, the sins of our society, right? Mm -hmm. So right now we see it happening where you say, they give us everything but what we want. How many Oprah magazines, right? How many Mm -hmm. billboards, how many documentaries before you see reform, right? right? Before you see justice, before you see um, change, And Mm -hmm. it has to be systemic, right? But it takes for all of us to realize that we are a small organism in that process of systemic systemic change. And Mm -hmm. that if you don't do what you can do from your epicenter and I don't do what I can do from my epicenter, we don't meet in the middle. We don't have that intersection where it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's someone heavy more doing more of the heavy lifting. And so um, I think just in general, um, in life, just thinking about the ways that you can push the fold and that you can, I don't like to be censored. I don't like to, um, I like to ha- I like to feel that the work is authentic, that I'm able to bring my authentic voice to agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's times where wrong is wrong, right? And you just have to realize um, sometimes it's because we're trying to be entrepreneurs and we're doing the work of an entrepreneur. True. And in doing the work of entrepreneurs, um, we've launched ebooks, internet, email campaigns, b- built our subscriber list where um, we're sharing on an ongoing basis this information about how you can progressively attack anti-racist education, be it with your students or be it with yourself, right? And really looking at the ways that, um, unfortunately, many are forced to fund their edu- fund their education, right? And so how can we in- create more resources that are free? And that's really where it started. We launched an ebook called Creating Connections After COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And it was really about sometimes um, people, like I said, have to fund their education in that they have to go find this information. It's not mm-hmm. available on YouTube University. And that's why we have to produce that content for YouTube University, produce those resources and say, um, what's just our everyday contribution to the world for this work? Is it an interaction with your neighbor, right? And it's all things. It's doing the talk for the YWCA about it's time to talk, right? And sharing my narrative about with microaggressions as who I am just for myself. It's what I bring into my work. And it's realizing the anti-racism education and anti-racist work is it's ongoing it's ever-changing right. it's 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 simply something that we just need to buckle up and be along for the ride mm-hmm. um because as long as there are humans on this earth there will be differences 
right? And as long mm -hmm. as there would be differences, we have the opportunity to say, how can we overcome those differences and how can we really be a part of the solution? Right. One of the things that we've talked about a lot on the podcast is uh, individual trauma. We've talked a lot about uh, systemic trauma and resiliency. I think resiliency is a really important part that we don't always get the chance to focus on. Um, the, the solution is a really important part that we don't always get the chance to focus on. So I really appreciate you bringing that out in the conversation that we're having today. But when we're talking about this collective trauma, we're talking about racism as ongoing collective trauma. And I wonder in your anti-racist education, because that, um, that great quote or reference from Ibram X. Kendi, who says that uh, the heartbeat of racism is denial, right? And mm -hmm. I think that denial and that defensiveness go completely hand in hand. And I wondered for you as an anti-racist educator, how do you encounter that defensiveness when you're doing workshops? How do you respond to it? Um, you've mentioned earlier that you kind of get a little bit of joy out of it. And I also love how you sort of decenter whiteness when you're talking about this too. You say, what, what's the phrase that you use? Like, um, Melanin recessive. I love that. <laughs> I love the like playfulness and the way that it decenters whiteness as the norm. I'm using air quotes. Your listener. Yeah, and that's I actually got that from um, a march this summer with the mothers, right? And so um, your question has a couple different layers, right? That first part talking about right the trauma. One of the things that um, I can't underscore enough in this work is understanding um, the relationship between anti-racist education and epigenetic trauma, right? So epigenetic trauma, meaning that genetically, um, it's believed that there are traumatic markers, right? Almost on our soul, on our DNA that are passed down from our right. parents. And so when we talk about microaggressions, when we talk about these layers of anti-racist education in the world, it's helping people understand that it's not about what happened to me today. It's not, it's not that George Floyd is a new thing. It's a trigger for Emma Till and others going way back and way, way back, you know? And so when I think about the role of that and I think about it in this work, it's, it's strategically shaping the narrative, like you said about, it's not all trauma, but it's also when there is trauma, it's not back to business per usual on Monday, right? It's not just because I sat in my seat and I logged into the Zoom meeting and I turned the camera on. I, I unsaw, I unfelt, right? And, it, it's the, and that trauma is cumulative. So George Floyd this year reminds you and makes you relive. It teaches you about Breonna Taylor, right? It teaches you about Ahmaud Arbery. It teaches you to go even further back. And you realize that there are so many who don't make the news. And when you have that and you're doing this work, and when I say, when you say to decenter, it was at some point I had to realize that, you'll, that the personal journey of another in their whiteness, in their blackness, right, um, is not something I get the, it's not something that I have the luxury of taking personal. Their lived experience, where they are on their path, on their journey, and in a very Chadwick Boseman spirit, right, where, where we live in our superhero, we never knew 
he had colon cancer, right? And that's coming off a very real experience where very, in, in my life a year ago, my aunt, very similar in that way, didn't want to leave that epigenetic trauma behind. And so she went through her struggle and her journey by herself for that purpose. When you see Chadwick Boseman and you think about this and you think about um, the work, I think about one, what is my responsibility to shield the next, right? Like if I've already if I've already served as that bulletproof vest for another, I've taken that microaggression, I've learned that, I've eaten it. How can I put that energy back into reshaping an experience for another? So if I'm doing a training and I'll for, never forget, there was one where a substitute teacher, um, she was not understanding that it really was about building relationships and defining respect with intercultural communities. Sure. She steps in a school building on day one and she yells to a little black girl what you need to do and how you need to be quiet, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, in thinking about that, what, what, I, what I said to her, she also was comfortable in her ignorance. So at the mm. same time, some people are sharing, not because they want to know the answer, but because they want to ask, just simply want to ask the question. So in a very Socratic way, I will ask more questions and give you more questions of yourself. Well, do you think it could have been about the power dynamic? Do you think the way you handled it? Do you think that you're yelling at someone who does not know you, right? All of those different things. And um, I'll never forget the feeling of hosting a training and having a, an entire school district um, come and really, it, it appeared they were there for the photo op, right? But they had a really bad bias incident that went national. Um, and so it was kind of like, we're here. And it was after the selfie, the engagement was down. A literal selfie? And, yeah, literal. It was literal. It was literal. The whole, the, it was probably 10 of them and they took the group photo and that was it. It was like, oh, well, gosh. and then it became, oh, can I leave? You know, all of these different things. And so when I think about the buy-in that it takes to do, um, to do this anti-racist work, you have to be personally committed within yourself. Right to say, I'm not going to feed into someone else's ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have to show up to every argument I'm invited to. Right. There's just something about owning the power of I don't have to dignify that with a response. So I simply answer what I want, right? Like, so if you are in a conversation, I'll never, I learned it from a colleague, this verbal judo, where you just spit it back, right? And it's the power of saying, you don't want to learn this. And so when someone is, um, I remember a training and someone said, um, So what can you say to people of color? Should I just not say anything? Because I'm always going to I'm always going to have to apologize for what I say. And when you hear that and when you get that and they say, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, what are you willing to do and what aren't you willing to do? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll never forget. I did the IDI, IDEI training with um, Jess. Rest in peace, mm-hmm. Jessica Flatterquall. Yeah. And um, we kept, we, we were laughing the whole time about that you can unschool or you can go to a diversity dinner or you can go to this anti-racism training and you will essentially one year from now be better in this work. Mm-hmm. And it does not work like that. It works like before you take a professional commitment, you first have to have a personal commitment. Right. Because when you walk, before you sit down at your desk, before you open up a textbook, it's about your thoughts when no one's around. And it's about what you're going to do when no one's looking, what you're going to yeah. say. I thought about the best part of if I had the opportunity to create a curriculum that would actively um, challenge and arm melanin recessive individuals with the responsibility 
mm-hmm. to learn to be anti-racist, right? Mm-hmm. To to learn that it's based on you to decide that you want to have the ability to check other white people, right? You don't want to always have to rely on a person of color in the space to take up for themselves. And some people don't do it because they feel they're not, um, they're not uniquely positioned. They're not skilled enough. They're not, um, they're not prepared for the conflict or what, what might happen thereafter. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's almost like when you think about laws, if you don't know what they are, you're bound to break them. So when you think about anti-racist education, it's thinking about if there was a protocol in life and etiquette, if you will, Mm -hmm. how would I share with colleagues and counterparts? Here's what your role is in anti-racist education. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about what I have to do. Don't worry about what I'm doing. What you can do is when you see something, say something and say something smart and how you say something smart is by by um, training yourself and learning about anti-racist education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the description of the word natural that's on the Love My Natural Facebook page. Natural, you say, is anything not made or caused by humankind. It's you in your rawest form. Be you. Be yourself believe in yourself. I think it's so beautiful that you're actively transformatively creating this world for yourself and your daughter and so many others. I wondered, based on our conversation, if you feel as though in any way you're writing these books for yourself as a child, or if it feels more like the future. You know, what's funny is um, in that space, um, my muse is my daughter, and the it was that's why it's so funny. I tell people like I was it was never my calling. It wasn't on my vision board to be a children's author. Um, I thought about what does she need to be able to survive this world, and mm-hmm. uh, I remember and we talk about this. Frozen Two came out, and suddenly she wasn't happy with herself for a second. It was right. like wait. You know, um, where's my blonde hair? Where's this? And I literally said, well, Frozen's out. We're not watching Frozen. We're going to stop and we're going to take time to learn to love yourself. We're going to take time to love who you are, Mm -hmm. to feel celebrated, to feel empowered, and to create little people who look like you. And in doing that with her, I mean, 10 books later, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just produced a book. I don't know if you remember with Paulette, Paulette, who used Mm -hmm. to be at Mankato. And it's, uh, I worked with her as her publishing coach, but she felt her daughter had something to say. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe that if we just listen, they tell us what they need. And she co-authors every book because I can't take credit for her idea. They're not Mm -hmm. mine. It's not something that I woke up feeling passionate about. But in watching her and thinking about the trauma of not loving your natural hair, of not feeling like um, I just remember feeling most beautiful doing nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to, I want to wake up and I tell people all the time, I can look, I can look some ways, colors not matching, roll out of bed and I can look in the mirror and it would, I would have to look in the mirror to remind me I look that way. I love myself so much, mm-hmm. right? Where you have to knock me off and yeah. say, girl, your hair's not done. You have to remind me. And that's mm-hmm. what I wanted for her. When you're not looking at something, and even when you do, and you see that, do you know that none of that, right? Like beauty is 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 skin deep, mm-hmm. right? And so it's this thing of saying like, um, you know, and there was a quote that, that I grew up on that says, beauty is skin deep, but ugly is to the bone. 
And what it meant was um, if you're ugly in your heart and your spirit, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, and looking at where she is, I find myself thinking of her life curriculum mm-hmm. and I end up on the Beyonce Lemonade album. And there's a song that's called Pretty Hurt, but it just talks about how um, it's your soul that needs surgery, right? It's not, let me do this. Let me cosmetically fix that. It's about mm-hmm. what is it on the inside? And I remember me looking at her and being like, you are the most beautiful brown skinned person I've ever seen. Yeah. And the realization that she too, she didn't feel that way has led to where we are. And our, our illustrator for this, um, this story was laying around in my phone. It's called the ballerina who lost her bro. Oh, I love that illustration. And this is her name, Sorcha McGlinchey. She's in Ireland. She lives in Ireland. She's Irish. And we, uh, there was a young girl when, when COVID kind of first hit, there was a young girl named Ariana who went viral. And in doing this work, we've, you know, Maya has, um, we've been to the Crown Act hearings. We've really learned that um, there's so many layers to just being a part of change. And in doing that, um, one of the things that really stuck with me with her was her ballet experience. We tried to, it was a predominantly white ballet school. And this was just in my phone. We wrote this on the airplane. We had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And we were going back and forth. And she was telling me why she did not enjoy the ballet experience. And so this book says uh, ballerinas with afros, that's brown girl magic. Mm-hmm. And it's simply, um, it gets to this point where Maya arrives at the ballet studio and she is the entire time saying, I don't want to wear my hair like this. And I, these tights are not my nude. This is not my color, right? All mm-hmm. of these things where it's like, imagine getting somewhere and the tights that you have on, they're not made for you. Right. Imagine that the outfit was never made for you. So everywhere you go, they're pinning it here. They're pulling it there. And so it says, Miss Maya, we are ballerinas and we wear our buns with high pride from head to toe. We want everyone to know that you're a special ballerina, even without your Afro. And so Maya's looking up at her and she's quite angry at this point in the book. And she mm-hmm. says, um, Misty, do you hear all that sound? I know some people may stop and stare, but I think I'd be an even better ballerina with my natural hair. Mm. And so through this book, Maya dances and she goes out there. And part of it is when a microaggressions happen, sometimes you you lead a youth to believe that they can just let, let it go, walk off, ignore it, do something else. Mm-hmm. No, sometimes you have to deal with that instructor and still get the grade. Sometimes you have to learn to navigate life. It's not as easy as having a pause or a button. Mm -hmm. And so in this book, Maya has to dance. She still goes out there and she goes out there with the hairstyle she doesn't like. And her ponytail holder snaps Mm -hmm. while she's dancing. And so if you see, it snaps and then she gets her fro at the end. And so the book ends and it just says, Oh my, look what you found. Your Afro came back and you lost your frown. And so we close it out by saying microaggressions do more than just offend, right? Mm-hmm. And so at the very core, it says, it is our hope that this book helps to change the narrative and that children across the nation not only learn to love their natural, 
but that society understands the importance of loving their natural too. You mm -hmm. have to be able to look and say that child is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Even when you don't see it yourself, even mm -hmm. when you don't think they act beautiful, it's not for us to label. Mm -hmm. It's for us to inspire. It's for us to teach them and for us to realize that they're learning for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about um, the microaggression of the, the, the ballet teacher saying, oh, you'd be prettier without your natural hair. Right. And you think that sounds nice. But to a child, it should sound like, so you mean I would look better if I wasn't myself. This right. is how I woke up. I woke up like this. Mm -hmm. I woke up, you know, uh, we have a, a young girl. We have a book this month called My Bald is Beautiful that celebrates Alopecia Awareness Month. Yeah. And there's a little four-year-old we work with in Minnesota. We dedicated that book to, and she's four living with full alopecia, so she mm -hmm. has no hair. Yeah. And so even where that comes, as we write with Maya, it's what's going on in your world? Yeah. What did we have to teach you? What did you maybe laugh at because you didn't know? Mm -hmm. And so from that, she helps us understand that she's not ready to be taught about racism in that way. Mm -hmm. She's ready to be taught about colors and differences mm -hmm. and understanding that this is different and that is different, but to that together, right? Mm -hmm. And using the right language, if you will. It's not about mm -hmm. labeling, it's about language. So when we think about, you know, somebody says, oh, but you want to call me a racist. But, but Well, you want to be anti-racist, right? So at the same time, it's this thing of saying, like, we're really looking for and youth. I don't want to teach her I don't want to pass the trauma on by teaching her, here's what happened in society and here's how you should feel about it. It's right. here's what happened and here's what you can do to change it. Yeah. And it's asking, what do you think you will be great at? What can you contribute to this world to be a part of this change? So Love My Natural mm -hmm. um, at the core has shipped books. I mean, we've shipped books across the nation and it's been simply sharing a message that representation matters, yeah. that nobody can be you like you Mm -hmm. um, that you have to love who you are when you wake up in the morning. It's not about that I put makeup on. And so when Maya hears a, a song say, um, with no makeup on, she gets excited. You know, like I am embraced. When I woke up, I'm loved when mm -hmm. I wake up. And really it's this idea of saying, um, in life is striving for the relationships that make you feel loved in your naked form, right? Like in my mm -hmm. very basic roots, um, that's where I am. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate thank you having for this. having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. This has been Starting to Feel Better. We hope that you'll join us next time for another conversation with a fascinating, creative, incredible guest. <laughs>